Hello, this is Rob Carmichael, and welcome to another Mainly Matters Business Podcast. I'm very pleased today I have as my guest, Andy Silvernail, one of the most successful CEOs in America, and someone those of us in Bucksport know as one of our most extraordinary alums. We're going to talk today about Andy's journey from the small community of Bucksport to the challenges and rewards in, in leadership uh, uh, aspects of his journey um, to the highest corporate levels in America. And I'm going to start by first, Andy's got an extensive resume. And before I bring him on, I want to talk a little bit about his background, but I certainly am not going to cover all of it. it it's, as I said, a very, very accomplished bio. And I'll hi- highlight some of that for our listeners Andy, uh, as, as I mentioned, is from Bucksport, uh, graduated from Bucksport, went to Phillips Exeter uh, Academy, then on to Dartmouth, where he received his BA in, in uh, government and his MBA later on from Harvard Business School. He's had a variety of positions from uh, uh, that we'll talk about today, from Rexnord, uh, Fidelity, I'm sorry, Rexnord Industries, Newell, Rubbermaid, Danaher, and so on up through uh, probably the longest, you would say the longest tenured uh, in his resume is uh, uh, is the CEO, president, chairman of the board of IDEX. He was uh, with Madison Industries and is currently, uh, we'll talk about his new venture with Five Nails. He's the uh, founder and owner of Five Nails LLC. I believe it's an LLC. We'll talk about that as well. He um, has been on a variety of boards, uh, uh, including Stryker Corporation. Uh, he's a, a 2012 class of Henry Crown Fellows from the Aspen Institute, very pre- prestigious institute. Uh, he's, uh, again, been uh, part of the uh, National Trustee for the Boys and Girls Clubs of America, just a, a host of things. And he also has been, uh, he and his wife, Shelby, have been tremendously generous in the philanthropic endeavors. Uh, just in Buck- Bucksport alone, they've generously supported the town substantially since the closing of our mill. They provided a large donation to the uh, Bucksport High School to support STEM projects. The Little Ten Conference, Andy was a tremendous football player and endowed a scholarship for the Little Ten Conference um, Scholar Athlete Award for outstanding students, athletes, and those in, uh, people involved in their community. They're part of uh, sports teams. A five thousand dollars scholarship is is awarded every year for that. So, uh, uh, just uh, again, a, a host of uh, in- incredible things that he and his family do. His, as I mentioned, his wife Shelby. They have three children, and. Uh, uh, one, I think, uh, I think it's Spencer just graduated from the U this, this, uh, spring. And we'll talk about, uh, the family and the support of his family and in, in his career as well. So welcome Andy to Mainly Matters. Rob, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, and you flatter me. Um, it, it's really my pleasure to be on the, the, the podcast here and, and to talk about, uh, leadership and to talk about things that matter to me and matter to Maine. Um, and, uh, and we can go wherever you want. This will be a lot of fun. Great, great. And I, you know, I did a lot of research and it's just, uh, I immersed myself in Andy Silvernail <laughs> in the, <laughs> in the last two weeks or so. It's just been, you know, I might be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think, you know, from a small town, you think, you know, everything, uh, about, yeah. about thing and I, about people. And I've read a lot about you over the, over the years and, and, but I learned a, a heck of a lot in, in the last uh, week or so. 
Uh, and one of the things I, I listened to that I found fascinating was the podcast um, that you did with uh, the author and uh, the other gentleman's name, but uh, the CEO next door. Yeah. And I just uh, I learned an, uh, an awful lot about that. I'm going to get that book um, uh, and read it because you are profiled in that in that book. Well, let's start by just um, you know sharing a little bit about, uh, and, and this is what I think is one of the most important things about about your story is because it sends a message to to um, people everywhere. It doesn't it doesn't matter where you come from. It in many cases, uh, you, you know, everybody's journey is different, and and the challenges are, are different. But could you talk a little bit about your journey starting out in in Bucksport? Yeah, yeah. So you know, I uh, like a, like a lot of people in Maine. Um, you know, I, I come from a challenge background. Um, you know, all of us have a unique story, and and you know, mine really started when we moved to Bucksport shortly after my mother took her life, and my father raised myself and my three brothers on Jacob Buck Mountain. Um, and, uh, um, to say that we were poor would be, you know, insulting the poor. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it was, uh, it was a tough upbringing. It, it really was. And, and I found myself, um, you know, kind of wandering, uh, pretty substantially through my early years and, and frankly, being, being angry at the world, you know, after my mother's passing and, and the difficult circumstances. And I struggled, especially very early in school, I struggled and I got really lucky, Rob, where, um, I had a number of teachers and a number of coaches who stepped into my life. And then probably most importantly, um, you know, when I was you know, in, in junior high, I had the opportunity to go and, and basically live with my best friend's family. So the Clement family and uh, early and Floyd Clement um, became my, uh, you know, my parents in many ways. Um, and uh, and they they took me under their wing. And and that's that's where my life started to shape up, frankly. And um, and then from there, um, I, you know, I got very lucky to to meet a gentleman by the name of Tom Sullivan. And Tom uh, was my high school football coach and uh, has become still to this day one of the most important people in my lives and in my life. And and frankly, you know, if I think back to all the major decisions I've ever made, um, whether it's around family or friends or school or work, um, Tom is one of the people that I've I've gone to. And so. And so along the path, you know, I just got I got lucky time and time again by, you know, finding people and finding mentors. Um, like you mentioned, I went off to Phillips Exeter Academy after I graduated from from high school. Um, that was a prep school. I went there for a PG year and once again got lucky. Uh, Walter and Stephen Abbott, I met them at an awards banquet and they pointed me in that direction. Um, and they, of course, as some, as some of you may know, Walter was a longtime coach at the University of Maine, and Tom Sullivan, my football coach, had played for him. So this, this is kind of this winding connection of things. Oh, and I know them. I know them well. I played played at Watch. Maine with Tom, and wonderful people. Uh, he's yes, a tremendous people. leader, and and the same with the Abbots. Yes, absolutely. Just. And so, you know, um, I went off to Phillips Exeter. Um, I, I worked. It was, it was actually the most difficult um, experience in my life in terms of, of uh, you know, first time I'd left home. Um, very challenging academic environment. Um, and so I, I learned a lot about myself. And also, I went from being on this, you know, this phenomenal football team in uh, um, in Maine, in Bucksport, and, um, and then ended up uh, at Phillips Exeter, where we had a terrible football team, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> awful. and and I learned a lot about myself in that too. Um, uh, you know, just to you know about you know, 
you know, going to a new place, uh, really very rigorous academics. And at the same time, the thing that you had leaned on that had defined you um, was kind of not very good. Um, and I, from there, um, I had the wonderful opportunity of going to Dartmouth College um, and it was just a transformative, transformative opportunity for me. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it was the first time that I started to kind of see the world in, in a much bigger way um, uh, than, than I had ever really seen it before. Um, the, it was, um, I, I met people, I had experiences that transformed my way of thinking, meeting people from around the world. I had the opportunity to work in Washington, D.C., um, to, to work for Senator George Mitchell. Um, I had the opportunity to work for the late Chuck Chinquette. Um, when he ran for the state Senate back in, in, the, in 1992. Um, and, and that was a transformative experience for me also, was meeting Chuck and, and the Chimbro family, um, the Chinkhead family rather. And uh, it was pretty, you know, remarkable. And so from there, just kind of moved quickly. Um, I went off, my first job was at Fidelity Investments as an equity analyst. Um, I knew nothing about business. <laughs> and so <laughs> yeah, as, you, as you mentioned, I was a political science, you know, junkie, I was a government major. And, um, you know, and so going off into the business world, you know, it was a, my first foray and did that for a number of years. And then, as you mentioned, I went off to Harvard Business School and, and which was kind of a funny experience because I met my wife, Shelby. We were high school sweethearts. And when I met Shelby, um, you know, the idea of going to Harvard, we had this we had this picture in our mind of what the person what a person from Harvard would be. And we were terrified of that being from small town Maine. Right. We expected, you know, daggers and knives and, <laughs> you know, backstabbing and all that stuff. And it's, we had exactly the opposite experience. It was wonderful. Um, and then and then really from coming out of there, I, I spent I graduated in 1999. And so from there since today, I have been in the world of what I'll call industrial and scientific technologies. Um, uh, it would just, you know, I, I, a number of different companies, um, the, you know, a, a number of, of wonderful opportunities where we've gotten to live around, around the country and travel around the world. And then in, uh, um, you know, the most important thing, as you mentioned, Rob, in, in uh, 2009, I joined IDEX Corporation, a couple of years later became CEO, then had a, a, a near, um, uh, about a 10 year run there, um, and uh, just that's where my I think all of my leadership, the things that I really care about leadership really came together. And I started to really think about the kind of leader I wanted to be um, and how I wanted to impact people. Um, and so, you know, since then, since, you know, um, re retiring from IDEX, I, I say retire, I guess it's not official retirement, but since stepping down from IDEX, um, you know, I have been a little bit on a journey in the last couple of years, uh, helping out a company called Madison Industries. And then just recently forming my own company, Five Nails LLC, which is is really a, a business around investment and advisory um, around unleashing potential in industrial life science and consumer products companies. And, and I think the word, yeah, the word unleashing potential is, is an important part of how I think about leadership. So that's been my journey. And, and here I am today. Well, I, I was looking at Five Nails and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, oh, that's an interesting name. What, what's the company about? Then I, as I was reading further, I think it was a, it was an interview in the Bangor Daily. Somebody had refer, referred to you as Nails as a yeah. nickname. And I'm thinking, okay, five people in the family, maybe. The, the, yeah. <laughs> the and Rob, that's, it's, it's, it's funny. You know, yes, it is. There's, there's five of us in my family, myself, my wife, two sons and a daughter. 
And um, so that's that that's the five nails. But how actually how it actually finally came together is my my middle son, the one you just mentioned, graduated from the University of Miami. Yeah, he called to inform us that he had gotten a tattoo. And uh, I, I to be candid with you, I'm not a big <laughs> tattoo guy. <laughs> But he had gotten a tattoo, and the tattoo is on his back right shoulder, and it's five silver nails coming together, kind of in a circle. Oh, awesome! You know, with, with, yeah, so so that's kind of the come to the the de facto logo. We hit the guy who doesn't like tattoos very much. <laughs> that's, that's kind of how it came adopted about. it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, it, you know, when you talk about that, and this again is for 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 those uh, kids that come out of small towns, and and you're yeah. you're the second. Uh, a classmate of mine went to Harvard Business School in uh, in the in the eighties, and I had interviewed him previously. But it, what sort of you know, a lot of kids come out of small towns with that insecurity feeling, like you know, I, I'm not good enough. I went to a small school. Did that play any role early on with your uh, your growth and development? Was it a, a challenge for you at all? It, it, it really was. I mean, frankly, I until I. Boy, as I as I finally got my my act together, so to speak, um, you know, when when I when I met Shelby when we were in high school, that's when I really got my academic act together because I was a I was a pretty average student, Rob. <laughs> um, and, and again, that might be insulting average students. Um, <laughs> and it's uh, you know, I was a pretty average student. I, I I had ambitions to go play football in college, and I was thinking, you know, maybe I'd stretch and and if I got lucky, I could go to Colby and or maybe go play at the University of Maine and and try to work my way through that or. And and it wasn't until I met the Abbots where I really got the idea of of a bigger concept, and and even when I got the idea of the bigger concept, I will never remember when Tom Sullivan, again my high school football coach, when he took me down to Exeter to go interview, I remember driving on that campus and just being dumbfounded. You know, it was, it's you know it's it's just it, it's it's beautiful. It's big. There's enormous amounts of, of wealth in, the, in those areas. And I remember being intimidated and I remember being dropped off the day I got dropped off at Exeter and being very intimidated. And and uh, and it probably took me half the year to get my my feet under me. Um, and it just it's a it's just a different world. I and mean, everybody who goes to places like Exeter or Dartmouth or Harvard, they were the best at something. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they were they were the smartest person in their class. They were, you know. They were the captain of X, Y, Z, whatever. And, and so, you know, when you go into those environments, there becomes a normal distribution again, right? And so even though you were number one someplace, you could easily be, you know, number 90 right, <laughs> somewhere right. else. And so it took a while. And, and it actually, you know, I, I would say it's, it's actually taken my whole life, to be honest with you, right? And, and my being from a small town, being from Maine, um, the values that you get that I got growing up, the values that my wife got growing up, those are values that we want our kids to have. Um, you know, those the concepts of, of, of total integrity, of incredibly hard work, um, right, of, of doing the right thing, uh, of treating people well. I mean, those are the things that I was brought up with on the, on the, on the Clement farm and, mm-hmm. and taught by Tom Sullivan. And, and so while, yes, it was intimidating, I found it actually to be an enormous strength over time. I've, it's, it's allowed me you know, as I as I've moved my way through, you know, the, the professional ranks and, and finally becoming a chief executive officer, you know, I, it, I, I'm able to interact with anybody. Um, you know, I, I was the kid that people shunned. Right. So, I, you know, I was the, the poor kid with ripped shoes. And so, you know, when I walk into a manufacturing plant 
and I'm sitting down talking with the people, you know, who are from the union. I, I grew up with people from the union. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, and, and it's, we're all, we're all in this together. There's, there's no one, I, I don't care what your title is. No one is better than anybody else. And I think as a leader, your, your real job is to be a, a servant and, and that servant does not mean you're serving people per se, but you're, you're enabling them to, to find their potential. Um, and, and I, I found that in so many ways and all the different lessons that I got from growing up in a small town. And, and, I, and I'm guessing that's what, that's sort of the advice you would, you would give to, I'm sure you've spoken at a lot of different, uh, events and, and, uh, and talk yeah. to young people. I'm, I'm guessing yes. that that's, that's the message is hold on to your core values and, and it, it is, it's, it, it's hold on to your core values, but also nobody is better than you. Mm-hmm. Right. Just because you're from a small town and you didn't come from a big city or maybe you didn't come from money or or, you know, or maybe you're, you grew up and you had to have food stamps or government assistance in some way. That doesn't make anybody else better than you. Um, and when I was in college, I had the opportunity to, to go to Illinois for a summer and work for a friend of mine's parents uh, manufacturing company called McLean Fogg. And I eventually became a board a director there years later. And um, the. You know, these are people from immense means, right? Uh, people who have private planes and things like that. And I quickly got a vision or got an insight that they weren't any better than me, right? And and I don't mean that in a in a in an egotistic way, but it, it was just an insight of like, wait a second, we're all just people. Yeah, okay, right. they got a few more they got a few more bucks in the bank than I do. Great. Um, but you know, I, I saw Barry McLean, the patriarch of the family treat everybody with incredible respect, right? And as a matter of fact, that's in the mission statement of their company. And and you saw that and you're like, wait a second, you can both, you know, run a business, build a business, be a capitalist, and be a darn good person. They're not mutually exclusive. That's it's, absolutely it, not. That's a that's an excellent message. And you mentioned serve and it's interesting because I Again, uh, in, in preparation for this, I had read an essay by you've, I know you've you've heard of him, Robert Greenleaf, yes, who uh, wrote and coined the term servant leader, and I and I yes. reread his essay this week, and he talks about uh, the natural servant, the person who is the servant first, uh, the servant leader is a servant first. Yes, and and you mentioned that. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that in terms of your leadership philosophy? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the things I saw relatively early in my career that I did not like was a, a very classical hierarchical um, structure and relationship between the person who's the boss, right, and and the folks who are on the front line. And almost think of it like a pyramid, right, hmm. with the CEO or the president or whoever sitting at the top and and then and the folks who are actually doing the work every single day the hard work every day kind of sitting at the bottom right that's a that's a classical view of organizational structure and my view is exactly the opposite which is flip that completely around right where the ceo is at that triangle is, is upside down the ceo or the president or whoever is at the bottom or the principal whoever is the, the fundamental leader um and you are there to support the organization up through the top of that triangle where that thing is, you know, is inverted now. And that's where the customer is. That's where the community is. And, and the job of the, of the CEO is to do that. And that is in service. And, and sometimes people really confuse when you say in service, well, hey, you're going to bring me a cup of coffee. 
No, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I am going to help you. Um, uh, I'm going to help you identify issues and opportunities. I'm going to help you break down barriers. I'm going to listen really deeply to your said and unsaid needs. Um, I'm going to make your life. I'm going to. I'm going to help make your life better, not worse. And you know, we, I grew up in an era of of uh, of kind of the Jack Welch era, which was one of fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that's definitely started to pass in many 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 ways. That the power in the workforce today, I, you guys have seen all the you know uh, hiring signs that are out there, right? Everywhere you go, uh, people are looking for great people to work. Um, that the power really stands with the individual today. It does not stand with the organization. And as a leader, if you don't understand that, you don't have followers. Absolutely. And, and you're not a leader if you don't have followers. Absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, this day and age, I, part of my, my title is a chief strategy officer, but I also have under my purview all the, the HR um, talent management and all of that thing. And, and right. we all know now that what a, what a challenge it is and how competitive oh it is for talent management uh, to talent these days. So, and that is, if you look over the next ten or twenty years, um, there'll be moments when unemployment will go up again. Something will happen, right? You'll go into a recession, or you'll get another pandemic, or something. But those will be short lived. And if you just look at the demographics and you look at the long term trends, what we are seeing today is only going to accelerate. And so, once again, that means as a leader, if you really want to attract and retain the best people and the best teams, you better start thinking of yourself as a servant. And you mentioned, you mentioned listening. And again, um, in Greenleaf's uh, essay, it was, it was written in, in like 1970 or 71, yeah. but it's still present today. It really is, is, uh, it's so relevant. And one of the things he says is I have a bias about this, which suggests that only a true natural servant automatically responds to any problem by listening first. Right. I just thought that was so, uh, you know, so relevant today. It, it it goes with what you said. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Rob, I think that's been relevant forever. It's just you have to listen a lot more when you don't have the power, right? Um, you know, when because if you're in a day and an age where, you know, you can kind of do what you want, you almost can get away with not listening. Um, I, I don't think that's ever really truly been accurate. But that's how people have felt. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Wait, not just not just listen to words, right? Um, you you got you got to really sit and watch people and listen to what their body language is saying, because most people are very 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 afraid to have a candid conversation with those who they view in quote unquote empower. And and so very few leaders get get true unfiltered information. And so as a leader, you've got to go and find where to go listen. Right? You've got to listen when not necessarily everyone knows you're listening. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. You got to creep. It's it's like a pro. It's a process. People always talk about communication. Absolutely. Uh, problem with communication. What does that mean? You know, part of the part of it's the listening piece. And how do we create opportunity? It all starts there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, Rob. Absolutely. You. You uh, in your journey, um, you you've led different companies, pri- private companies, publicly traded companies. Could you talk a little bit about? Is there a, a huge difference in terms of how you lead, how you manage between uh, publicly traded and and private companies? I, I 
think there are there are nuanced differences that have the potential over time to being relatively substantial. And so I, I don't think in terms of how you lead people, how you treat people, how you recruit, retain, um, I don't think there's a big difference between, you know, public or private. I would say the biggest difference that I have seen is, is that private companies, when they're making investments, um, tend to have the ability to move, um, uh, to, to think much longer term, right? And to make bigger bets relative to their capital, human capital or financial capital base. That, that, that tends to be the biggest difference. If when you're in a public company, you just have more constraints around your board of directors, your investors, the expectations they have on you, the fact that you have to report numbers every quarter. That tends to just drive certain behaviors, but it's it's less than you think. Um, and then and then there are some real there are some real benefits of a public company, right? You have access to capital. That's a big one. Um, you have real governance. Um, you ha- you have rules of the road. Uh, private companies, and I've I've been intimately involved with a number of them. Sometimes they don't have rules of the road, and sometimes those rules are being determined by one or two people who maybe be really out of touch. And so there are pluses and minuses to both. And you, you would uh, we we talked about values earlier in terms of your leadership philosophy and corporate and in, in, in how corporations um, the direction that they go and how how big a part do values play in in how you go about your business? I, I think they're everything, right? Because if you think about your values, your values are really the habits that are displayed each and every day by the folks who work within an organization that, that, that those are, those are your values, right? It doesn't matter what you say, you know, it, it's the things that habitually happen within an organization that, that are the definition of their values. And so if you think from there, um, well, value, well, if, if values are expressed as the habits, right? Habits are defined by character and character is defined by leadership. And so if what you really want are great habits in your business, right, that, that define the values, you as the leader have to define them, have to live them, have to uphold them, have to incent them. Um, and, and, you know, you, there have to be consequences positively and negatively around that. And when I see organizations get it right. So as, as an example, when I was at, at, at IDEX, we had three values, trust, team and excellence. Those are the three values that we had. And we defined them very clearly, um, and we made every decision through those, right? And trust meaning all of your constituents, your investors, the folks who work at the company, the communities that you live and work in, um, you know, uh, your customers, that you, you have to build trust with all of them because what you're trying to build is an ecosystem of trust, right? Where you are, and trust is simple, you are making and keeping promises, Right. That's that's what trust is. It's 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 a simple process of making keeping promises. And then we looked at team and we said, boy, we did not want a culture of of the what I'll call the superstar culture. We wanted a culture where it was about building great teams. And so we developed a methodology about consistently building great teams. And and how did you how do you teach that? How do you reinforce that? How do you incent that? And then we had a very high standard of excellence. So uh, across all of the dimensions of the business. We had very high standards, and, and, and that included uh, associate engagement standards, that included community involvement standards, and of course, it, it, it involved total shareholder return uh, and, and how you impacted customers in terms of customer satisfaction. 
So I, I think that that sense of values is so important, but it's also really dangerous. So just a quick example, when we decided that trust was going to be one of our values at IDEX, it was hotly contested. It was a hotly, it was, I shouldn't say contested. It was a hot debate. And the debate was not that whether we liked the word trust or not, it was whether we could live up to the word trust or not. And I think that's true with any value, right? If, if you say that people are the most important asset, which you hear a lot, and then people are treated poorly, that sends, that's, you, you're better off having never said it at all. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, that's absolutely. And I, and I think that's the case with any value. So I would say, pick them, pick very few of them. I would say three or three or fewer, live them, incent them, um, and, and kind of rinse and repeat. I like the the uh, you know, sometimes corporations companies get uh, too too in, immersed in in too many values, and you can't possibly uh, track and 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 make sure that you're keeping in line with each and every one of those values. One of the things that I, I wonder if what you think about this is we we used to my organizational consulting days we used to talk about vision being the you know the uh, uh, perfect state, you know, perfect place we want to be in the future, ideal future state, yep. I think we used to call it. And then the mm -hmm. mission being your purpose, why you exist. And we used, and then values were, th those are the things that keep you on track. Those are, and it sounds like that's the way you've described it. Yeah. I, I think, you know, what you're really describing, Rob, is the concept of going from, from, from vision to daily work, right. Or from strategy to daily work. And, um, um, and, and again, you know, I think sometimes in, in organizations, and this is, you know, one of my best friends and my wife's uncle is a is a pastor in Orrington, and and he and I, it's amazing. He, he's one. Of, we've been the closest of friends for forever, and you know, we talk a lot. And and you know, and his his customer base is, is the flock, right, so to speak. And um, and it's amazing how similar our challenges are. It's amazing. Mm. Um, it, there's very little difference in in what he does you know, um, in, uh, in, in his pastoral uh, world and what I do in, in the business world, because it's, again, it's fundamentally about people, right? It's fundamentally about, um, how you, you know, leadership in my mind, if, if you really simplify this, right. It, it's, it's, it's really a skill, Rob. It's not, sometimes we think leaders are born, <laughs> right? They're, they're not, it, it's a skill. And that skill is about influencing people and you're trying to get them to, to work enthusiastically towards some goal that you that you all agree on and it's for the common good that, that's kind of how i think about leadership and so that doesn't matter if you're a superintendent of a school if you're running a grocery store right um you know my, my best friend from growing up the farm that i grew up on he's a principal in searsport mm -hmm. um and his again once again his job is way harder than mine <laughs> <laughs> way harder way harder than mine um and so i i just i, I really think that the, the ideas of leadership and the responsibilities of leadership um, uh, don't it doesn't really matter if you if there are two or more people together there's an opportunity for leadership I, I love that perspective and I, I've always thought that and you, you mentioned about uh, you know there's always been this uh, conflict between are leaders born are they made are they developed and and you mentioned about it being a skill and I that's yeah. the way I believe as well. Do you, how do you think athletics, or what role did athletics play it in your in your growth as a leader? I know what it played for yeah. me and how big of an impact it's been in my career. You know, it's been it's been huge, um, and uh, you know, I, I 
my, my very first organized sport was was uh, Little League. And I played for White's Exxon, uh, which used to be the gas station downtown mm-hmm. Boxport. And my coach was Charlie Deschard. And Charlie was the uh, he was the uh, uh, he worked at the mill. I went to school with his daughter. I wrestled with his son. His brother, and, his son Pete, was on my football teams. Oh, is that right? Great guy. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so you know, just a uh, and and what I learned from Charlie was was kind of the love of the game. I boy, we'd lose and I'd break down in tears. I'd just cry. And and he'd get Andy. Look, that's not what this is about. This is about learning how to play baseball, and about learning how to be a good sport. And then you know, through the years, I, I played for Ivan Braun uh, in, in Pop Warner football, uh, uh, Mr. Simcoe in eighth grade football, and then of course Tom Sullivan and, and wrestled for Mike Carter, um, you know, uh, in, in high school. And, and those played, you know, frankly, I, I put too much emphasis on sports early on. <laughs> you know, that's that, that's what I was excited about. And, and Shelby set me on the on the right path, <laughs> um, but I but I learned you, you learn to collaborate, you learn to to put people above yourself, you learn teamwork. Um, you know, there's so many things that you learn. You learn to lose, <laughs> um, you know, which is is you know I don't I hate losing, but you got to learn to lose. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget we we lost the state championship in football my senior year. That was and Marshwood. Was it? Uh, Mar- Marshwood. I think I was at that yep. game. Yeah. Boy, it was a beatdown. <laughs> <laughs> it was a tough game. Yeah. It was. Uh, but we lost, and you know, after they had the you know the the award ceremonies with you know kind of faces all turned and whatnot, I just started walking away, and I I was in tears. And Tom Sullivan came up behind me and put his hand on my shoulder, and I was myself and a couple others were captains of the team, and Tom put his hand on my shoulder and said, "Andy, you got to go to that locker room because." Those kids need you now more than if we'd have won. Absolutely. And that really stuck with me. That really stuck with me because, you know, when you're, as you know, Rob, when you're responsible for an organization, you know, m- more days are hard than easy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, it's just the reality. It's, you know, there are, you know, we had 8,000 people at IDEX. We had 20,000 people at Madison. When there are that many people and then multiply that by, you know, their family members, multiply that by, the customers, you're talking tens and hundreds of thousands of people that you're touching in some way. And so there are going to be problems. Um, I, I can't tell you, I mean, boy, at least five times in my career, I've had to pick up a phone and call a spouse, right? Who's, who's, you know, partner died, hmm. um, you know, not necessarily on the job, but that, that they died and to have that conversation with the family and to go to funerals. And those are parts of the job as a leader. And that's where that's where love really comes in. And, and I don't, you know, we, we, in our society, love gets kind of used as a term around romance and no love is about caring deeply for people. And, and I think as a leader, you've got to love the people you work with. You've got to love your customers because it is a lot of work. And unless you have that drive, you're kind of there for a paycheck and, and, and being there just for a paycheck stinks. It, it, absolutely. And, you know, we, we talk it a lot uh, in, in my business about uh, how many hours we spend with the people at mm-hmm. work. And, and it does become, if you can't look at those folks as family and feel that love and, and care about their well-being as a yeah. leader, you're going to fail one way. Yeah. It, and sometimes love means something very tough, right? I, I, have, I have fired people mm-hmm. that I love, right? I have. Um, and, and what's funny is years later, um, I'll get, I'll, I'll get a call from them and they'll say, Hey, by the way, thank you so much. 
that that's what I need in my life. And by the way, I need a reference. You know, can you be one? And, you know, and you find yourself with the relationships of people that you even had those difficult things. But just like with your children, there are times where you have to draw boundaries, you know, with with people that you're responsible for, that if they cross them, there has to be a consequence. Mm -hmm. And if there isn't a consequence, then the rest of the organization suffers. It really goes back to the trust, as you mentioned. If you're being honest with people, honesty means helping them when things aren't going as well as they should be. Absolutely. And looking them square in the eye and having a conversation about what's going on, because you're going to have a perspective. They're going to have a different one. And the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Who knows where? Um, and, and it goes back to your comment about listening, Ron. When you're having a difficult time where, when you're working with somebody um, and, and you don't have that honest conversation, which includes deep listening, um, you're going to have a problem, right? And uh, at the same time, if you're willing to have really hard conversations with folks and be really honest, everybody appreciates it. Maybe not in the moment. It might hurt like heck in the moment. But boy, over time, everybody appreciates it. It's, it's so true and so important. I Gosh, I have a, a ton of questions, but I, I know we're getting short on time. So I really and I know your time is valuable. I want to if I just a couple more questions that uh, we can talk through, Andy, because one of the things that I find and maybe it's just anecdotal and not necessarily representative of everything in the country. But I, I have this feeling that people aren't necessarily um, driving to be leaders as much as as maybe yeah. in the past when I was growing up, everybody wanted to be in charge. Everybody wanted to yeah. aspire to be in one of those positions yeah. of leadership. Is Am I misreading that? Is it just too small a sample I'm seeing? What do you think I, about I, that? Well, you know, Rob, I actually look at it a little bit differently. I, I, think, I think the nature of leadership and how we learn about leadership has changed a lot. You know, so if you look at, 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 at you know, kind of, my generation, your generation, others, you know, we are really the product of World War II. Um, and, and, and in some ways, the product of World War One, right? If you go all the way back to our great grandparents. So my, you know, my, my paternal grandfather fought in World War One. You know, he snuck in. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, you know, my grandfather was in the Second World War. Shelby's grandparents were uh, parents, you know, Shelby's dad was in Vietnam. So, so many of us were a product of, of what was a, a military structure that then turned into things like the Boy Scouts and the Girl Scouts. And so, so much of what we learned about that was that classic triangle right, that I talked about earlier, right. where, you know, the, the general or the president's on top and, you know, you have a, you know, a, almost a militaristic structure. I think what's happened in the last 20 years is with this crazy communication world that we're in. And there are lots of positives and lots of negatives with it. But one of the things that's happened is this concept of, of crowdsourcing, right? And so, you know, it, it's this incredible way to collaborate in ways that we've never thought about. If you think about great collaboration, great collaboration happens in an environment where really nobody is the leader, right? Where, 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 where even the person who is the de facto head of the group is, is sitting with the rest of the group, actively collaborating, maybe facilitating, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think what's happened is our, our children and now grandchildren, they're growing up in this world that's it's just a very different structure and the signals of what leadership is and what matters. Now, I think there's some, there's some danger, right? The danger in the old way 
is that communication didn't flow, right? And people waited to be told what to do, right? The, the danger in the, in the environment we're in now is the, the public um, opinion about things, subgroups, some pretty wacko groups can get off to the fringe very fast with no control. Mm -hmm. And so this pluses and minuses, I think, in, in both models. But I think what's happening is I really do think that the, 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 the hyper growth in, in communication driven by, you know, the Internet, cell phones, um, et cetera, is really changing the nature of what a leader is and, 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 and where I want to be within that system. Yeah, I, I think that's a great, a great way to to put it. And you know, part of I think part of my challenge is is being schooled in the, in, you know, sort of the old, old approach. I, I think I'm yeah. very progressive, but I'm looking for leaders to just sort of sprout out in in right, certain right. things, and it's just it's not going to be exactly that way anymore. So, I, yep, yep. one of the things I do need to mention before we go, I I, I know you've you've heard this; uh, it's been talked about before with you. But uh, it, we our listeners need to remember that you, in 2012, I think it was 2012, you were named number four on the top. <laughs> uh, I believe it was the top 20 most powerful CEOs 40 years and, and under. And I was looking at the names on that list that. <laughs> Today, uh, Google's Larry Page, Kevin Plank yep. from Under Armour, Elon Musk, uh, yep. uh, Groupon's uh, Andrew Mason. Uh, very, very, very uh, good company there. And uh, I think that partly was, uh, I think, partly you were at IDEX and you had taken the uh, the stock, uh, you know, in the, it was in the, what, in the 40s when you took over and, and uh and grew that tremendously. Yeah, uh, we 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 we'd had a great run, and you know it's funny, Rob. It was, it was when that happened, it really kind of caught me by surprise. And I think the best comment in the whole thing came from one of my childhood friends. His, his name is Troy Sheehan, and uh, um, I think you know yeah, Troy. No, sure. And uh, so Troy sent a text message. And he goes, "Wait a second. He goes, you're 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 the number four most most powerful business person under forty. He goes, you're not the fourth most more, most powerful person in your house. <laughs> <laughs> Our friends have a way of keeping us grounded, don't they? The the childhood friends. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and I think I may have even fallen behind our dog Sammy. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, but it was it was it was it was an honor and and uh, um, you know just to to be amongst that group of people is 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 uh, is quite an honor. Yeah, and you were also on. I noticed that that. Uh, I didn't realize this. You were a dis, uh, consider, uh, named a distinguished American by the main chapter of the National Football Football Foundation in 2000. Yeah, that was fun. That was a lot that's, of fun. That's neat. Well, Andy, I, again, like I said, I could talk for hours, and uh, and uh, I know you don't have time to do that. But uh, the last question is: What advice would you give to a, a 2022 high school or college graduate who wants to walk in your shoes someday? Well, I think the, the first thing I would say to, to anyone, and I've said this to a lot of young people over the years, is, is you shouldn't want to walk in my shoes. Um, you you, you got to figure out what your own shoes are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I look at my own three kids, my, my, my three kids. One, one is a year graduated from college, one just graduated, and one's about to go to college. And so I think a lot about these topics just relative to them. And, and they're all very different, right? They're all, you know, very, very different kids with, with different capabilities. I think it's actually an intersection of things that you need to spend some time thinking about. That first thing is, what are you actually good at? Um, I would really, I think people have to be honest with themselves about where their talents really lie. And yes, we can continue to develop talents over time, 
But by the time you get to be, you know, in your late teens, early 20s, you have developed aptitudes and understanding what those aptitudes are and where you really can be different and competitive, I think is very important. Second, I would say, you know, you got to follow with what gives you energy. And, and a lot of times you say follow your passion. And I get what that means. But there are things that give us energy and there are things that take them away. I'm an extrovert. My wife is an introvert, right? I get energy by being connected to the outside world. She needs to come back into herself often to get to get her energy. Know what gives you energy, right? And, and what excites you. And if you put together your capabilities, with what excites you? And then finally, bring discipline to it, right? Good work habits, focus, time management, um, uh, execution of things. You'll have a pretty great life. And I think if those three things can come together, um, wherever it takes you, right? My oldest son wants to now be an educator, right? And he started off in business. My middle son is going into med tech. My daughter doesn't really know, right? Because she's going into college. She thinks she wants to go into medicine. Who knows? But give yourself some grace. Um, follow where you have real competence, where you, what gives you energy, and bring discipline to it. And I think you'll find a lot of success no matter where you go. That's a great message to to wrap up. And uh, and by the way, I'm 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 an introvert. I'm my Myers Briggs uh, type, <laughs> and and my friends say that's just not true. It just is not true. <laughs> I had to that's explain Myers Briggs to him. But uh, but I, I again, I appreciate the time and and the wisdom. And congratulations on on all your success. And I know. Uh, Shelby and your family are a big part of that as well. Congratulations Huge, to them. Yeah. And thanks for the message today. And uh, uh, hope maybe we can get together again in the future and talk more. Thank, thank you, Rob. It's been a privilege to be on. And, and uh, uh, again, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to be from Maine and still spend a lot of time in Maine. And, and I just think the world of, of, of what we do here in this great state. Wonderful. Well, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me again for another Mainly Matters podcast in the very near future.